These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle, and I am here today with Rebecca Schutz. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Doing well. Hanging in there. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Same thing. Another day. Okay. So we are recording on Friday, May 8th. And a couple of days ago, I interviewed the head of a local law firm who was getting ready to reopen his firm's offices on Monday. Now, it's a voluntary situation, so if employees aren't able or don't feel comfortable coming to work, it's not mandatory that they do. And also, a law firm, or at least this one, is already pretty well poised to reopen in a safe way because... Law firms typically have a bunch of enclosed offices. They're not the kind of industry, generally speaking, where people are crammed together in a big open space. But all that said, in a way, it felt, I don't know, a little startling, I guess, that offices are beginning to reopen. But on the other hand, Texas is kind of on the leading edge of the sort of back-to-business mindset. Restaurants have reopened. Shops and malls are opened. And even today, hair salons and barbershops. reopened. Yeah, that's right. Jiu-jitsu gyms are about to reopen, apparently. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I was like talking to someone who does jiu-jitsu, and I was like, gyms are reopening. And I was like, oh, but probably not your gym. And he's like, oh, no, it's reopening. So so this law firm, this, this guy that I talked to said that, you know, the company is reopening Monday. They've implemented a bunch of new procedures and put a lot of those plexiglass barriers up that you see everywhere now. They're not allowing visitors for the first month. They've made changes in all their common areas. And well, more of this is going to be coming. And today on the show, we would like to welcome Charlie Kuntz. Charlie is the innovation officer with the Heinz real estate firm. And I don't think Heinz needs any introduction, but For those who may be new to real estate, Heinz is a giant in the industry responsible for developing some of the city's most recognizable buildings, Williams Tower, the Galleria, Pennzoil Place, the list goes on. It's a global development and investment firm, and it is based right here in Houston. Charlie Kuntz, welcome to Looped In. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. But before we get started... I wanted to ask you something because I was told that you listen to a lot of podcasts. So I kind of want to know what what shows are at the top of your podcast app. Um, I really like uh, um, things you didn't know. Uh, I really like. Um, uh, I'm, I'm blinking. Hang on, guys. Let me pull up my stuff. That's okay. I got I, some good ones. I, I totally put you on the spot, and I no. do that too all the time. I'm like, uh, well, and uh, what I really like is I like Mark Marin. Um, yeah, but for whatever reason, when I'm pulling up apps. It's not coming up on my phone. Um, what's the one with? Um, uh, oh, the Joe Rogan Experience is okay. one that I really like a lot, mainly because of the um, the, the completely freeform nature of it. So, 
Um, he'll have on obviously all kinds of different um, opinions and experts and his podcast will be anywhere between 45 minutes to three hours. And the, the notion of really wide open free form conversations like that, um, I found, I find that I'm kind of part of the conversation. So I've, I really mm-hmm. like those, those looser podcasts that let the conversations really meander. And I just feel like I'm learning a lot and it just, just feels, it feels genuine and um, kind of personal. Yeah. That's cool. I, I like those too. So I hear construction. I, I assume you're working from home, right? I am working from home. Been working from home for about two months. Okay. Is there construction out your out your window? Uh, yes, there is actually some construction <laughs> out my window. Can you hear it? I'm also uh, uh, a member of a uh, of a rambunctious family, so um, <laughs> you may hear my wife or my eight year old son or my five year old daughter or our 13 week. Uh, old puppy somewhere in the background. Over the <laughs> so. Aww, a quarantine adoption? Yes, actually it was. And um, he's been spectacular. Really the, a, a major morale boost around the Coons household. He, he just thinks every day is fantastic. He thinks that this, he's not paying just an ounce of attention to this whole COVID thing. And every, every minute of every day is awesome. It's great to have him. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that is so cool. What uh, what kind of puppy? He's a Labradoodle. So um, oh, nice. I had a I had a Chesapeake Bay Retriever for quite a while, and um, he passed away about two years ago. And um, we've been thinking about getting a new dog, but just have been taking our time with it, and realized that now's the perfect time, and it's been great. I, it is the perfect time. We've been thinking about it too, but I'm just worried that we're going to get one and then everything's going to go back to normal and I'm going to be. Yeah. Oh, a week ago, Violet was thinking about a dog. Now yes. we are thinking about a dog. Well, <laughs> I, I, it, you know, it, it is the perfect time to do it. And I've thought like, maybe I could do a foster situation, yep. but my, um, as Rebecca knows, Charlie, my, my nine-year-old is really, uh, really wanting a specific type of dog. She wants a Bichon Frise. Ah. For some reason, <laughs> and, uh, and so there are probably not many um, many of those up for foster. But hey, I guess if anyone knows of one, please please let me know. Please I'll send them out. your way for sure. Part <laughs> of the part of our whole thing about getting a dog too was that um, uh, my kiddos have been talking a lot about cats, and I've never had a cat. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, I think we could totally do a cat, but we decided to distract with the dog first because that's what I know best and it seems to be working. So, Okay. Well, in the future, direct your cat questions to Rebecca. I will. Um, Thank you. She is a very loving and responsible cat cat (laughs) owner. So, (laughs) All right. Well, um, let's let's get back to why we're here and that's to talk about office space and sort of what it's going to look like when we all return to the office, which for some is happening next week and for others – it will be probably a, a good while till till they get back in the office. Also, wanted to ask your about your title. You're an innovation officer. What does that mean? So, Heinz, being founded by a mechanical engineer um, who realized that there could be more efficient and better ways to build and manage buildings, really from an energy consumption perspective, going back to the um, 1960s. We've been innovations have been a big part of our culture from the beginning. Um, But what we found over the last few years was that the volume of new technologies and 
um, acceleration of new early trends was occurring at such a clip that um, we decided to put some specific resources exclusively focusing on those new things and working with all of our folks across the firm to help them explore, to um, do R&D and so forth. And so a little over three years ago, uh, I was asked to start an, an innovation firm to really form our own opinions on uh, new technologies and whether we should be investing in some or using some or changing the way that we think about operating our buildings or additional services that um, we think would, would be compelling and helpful for our customers. And um, it's, been, it's been really, really exciting and very different from what I was doing before. My work before was uh, always had its challenges, but the, your goal was very clear. Doing development or acquisitions, you getting them completed and doing the work and the execution is very challenging, but you generally know where you're trying to get to and exactly what the budget is and the schedule and so forth. And this, this role is very different because you're constantly reprioritizing those goals with new information and a lot of things that are outside of your control, things change. So it's been really different, but it's been great. I've just loved it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear at what point did you kind of say to yourself, wow, my job is about to get really interesting or everything that we've sort of been studying up until now, now we're going to have to apply it in this different way, or we're going to have to turn it on its head or, mm-hmm. or, you know, was, was there a moment for you where you thought, okay, what I do is going to be really important. Not that it wasn't important before, but now it's really, especially important. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a really good question. And I, um, there wasn't a specific moment in time so much as it was probably two days upon which I realized that um, I was frankly grateful for some work that we had done in the past and that some of the things we had been focusing on were going to work, but the manner upon which we needed to be taking them on had just a substantially increased sense of urgency, a severe sense of urgency. So that's things like we had been exploring new access control technologies and you know, for ease of getting people in and out of our buildings, as well as touchless technologies for our elevators and occupancy sensors, air quality, all of those things that, you know, we thought interesting and we thought that they were important. And all of a sudden, they just take on this substantially increased weight. Mm-hmm. And um, when, when we started to discuss pretty regularly what was going on in China and why much earlier this year, that's when we started to kind of talk about some of these new technologies more openly in China. Now, the technologies there and the technologies here are actually quite different, but um, the trends like were... February? Yeah, we that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, um, but at that point, it was very unclear as to where things would go. Uh, so we kind of identified that trend early and we're, we're thinking about it. And then when all of a sudden we started talking about, hey, we're going we're gonna to take a test week here in Houston working from home and, and see how we all do. And that test week turned into two months. And uh, we started a little earlier than most and just decided to, to, to stick with it. And it was really when um, we realized that the test week was turning into a reality was when this became a much more, a much closer conversation than one with your colleagues over in China where it's happening everywhere and it's happening in your neighborhood and um, very eye-opening. I'm just curious, you're saying that you guys had studied, I think you're calling them access technologies. Yeah. Because like touchless elevators. What was the motivation for touchless 
elevator before. I think it's pretty clear why you might want one now. Yeah, so before before COVID, the, the thesis was really we were trying to make things as, as easy and as seamless as possible for the people in our buildings. And it was really focused from a service perspective to say we can place the right technology in our buildings such that all you need is your phone to open your garage to um, in, in cities where we do have turnstiles for security or in, in buildings where we do have turnstiles for security, you can simply use your phone there and you can use it up the elevator and, and everything else. And, um, and that uh, several of those kind of service oriented components have become significant health attributes as we think about our office buildings. And uh, so whether it's access or whether the, it's occupancy sensors and air quality sensors that we've been testing. We have a, um, one of our uh, co-working locations in, here in Houston. Nancy, you, you've, I know you visited. Um, mm-hmm. There's about 105 different occupancy sensors in that space and air quality sensors. And we were using that information to, or that location to test these sensors to try to make sense of how fundamentally useful they really are and to obviously improve the manner upon which we design our spaces. And now all of a sudden those sensors are taking on not only that use case to make sure that you design a more productive space and that your people are um, using your design the right way kind of around and across the building, but to be thinking of it in the capacity of um, having the right amount of density and the right um, kind of design in your building to be thinking through the condition that we're in today. And so it's been pretty interesting that that the, the components that we were looking at from a service and an improvement of service perspective are also right in line with our top priorities today of, of, of safety um, of, of people coming into our buildings and of our own people who work in this building. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is because of Heinz's recent affiliation with this group, this national group, or, or maybe it's even bigger, um, that's researching ways to prevent the spread of viruses like COVID-19 in the workplace. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about what this group is and what your or what Heinz's involvement is? Sure. So the, the, the central point of this kind of collaboration that's going on is the Well Living Lab, which is a lab at the Mayo Clinic, that's a joint venture between Delos, who created the, the well certification standard, and the Mayo Clinic. And we got involved with the lab a little over three years ago when we started really digging into the well certification itself. We thought it was a really interesting certification. It was very early on in their process where they were deciding exactly how the certification was going to work. And so for, for, for well, we were we were excited to explore it and we're thinking about it similarly. And that's when we were introduced to the Well Living Lab. And uh, at that point, we immediately decided to become a founding member. And that was a little over three years ago. And what they have is they have a um, several thousand square foot space that is built out as office space. They have their own employees in the space doing pretty measurable work. Uh, as it relates to uh, record keeping and accounting and kind of similar things like that, where you can actually track the volume of, of work that's getting done. And um, they have been exploring how the indoor environment 
really impacts people's health and wellness and productivity. And for us as a company that's built and, and manages hundreds of millions of square feet of space, the more information that we can, in terms of how our spaces that we're designing impacts people and how we can improve that was just something that was really exciting for us. Because oftentimes in the past, when we've talked about things like air quality and natural light, there's, there's never really been a definitive objective view that has made the conversation frankly stop and say, this is very important and this is exactly why and this is how it's measurable. And the Well Living Lab is in the process of doing exactly that because instead of creating an article or instead of trying to create a, uh, um, an explanation within our own development projects of how this occurs and how our buildings are helpful, instead they go through this process like you would with any medical study to go through their medical boards and get published in journals as a very credible, objective view on how indoor spaces affect people. And so they're looking at things like um, uh, natural light, air quality, food, noise, uh, configuration of office space, and they're measuring how it affects people's productivity, how it affects their mood, how it affects their sleep. And um, that's been going on for a few years now. And it's been really interesting to be working with them. And there have been some interesting findings and really the, a big one being that natural light can, the absence of natural light can create a lot of other concerns. So mm-hmm. all other things equal like noise or uh, air quality, if those all, if all those things stay constant, you start to reduce the amount of natural light that people get in a space, they begin to feel like there are other problems. They begin to feel like the, the air's stale. They begin to feel like they're actually, they're colder. And, and it's just, there's, there's some interesting kind of psychological observations that they're making that um, is helping inform how we should be thinking about our own spaces. And when COVID really took hold, we, we reached out to them immediately and said, how should we be thinking about this? And should we be changing the prioritization of our studies to be thinking about COVID? And, and they said, we've been having precisely those conversations with the Mayo Clinic we're in the process of shelving all of our current studies. We're, we're um, uh, reconfiguring an entirely new program. The Mayo Clinic is, is going to be partnering with us even deeper here. They're going to be providing their best epidemiologists and virologists. And um, uh, we've been in touch with them on a daily basis. And they're meeting with various stakeholders within the Mayo Clinic every day to focus exclusively on respiratory viruses and how mainly air quality um, HVAC systems uh, and surfaces and sanitizing those surfaces, as well as human behavioral components can be better managed to reduce the risk of these kinds of um, respiratory illnesses in our building, actually in all buildings, because everything that we're doing is being made public. So I'm curious as to, you know, what the timing is of all of this, because obviously time is of the essence and at the same time, we we need time to study something like this. Yeah. You know, I think the idea is to have these guidelines out so that pe- when people are coming back to work, they can they can use them. When will they be released? Yeah, I think you really hit on it. I mean, there's this tension between having a thorough study and needing to act. And we're obviously experiencing that across the board right now. And mm-hmm. um, it's no different in our environment. And I will say though, that the, um, 
the director of the of the lab is an epidemiologist and a cardiologist herself. And in our very first conversation that she had, really her top priority was her sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. So typically these can last six months, nine months, up to a year to get completed. But that's also true as we're looking at um, vaccines and we're seeing that that process is speeding up dramatically. And here at the Mayo Clinic and at the Well Living Lab, that process is getting sped up a lot on a couple of fronts. First, all COVID-oriented studies are all being put in the front of the line for everyone's work such that there's never a moment where it's sitting still. Whereas oftentimes there's a pretty deep stack of work that people are working on and they kind of need to work their way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other is really just that, frankly, folks over there are working around the clock. I'm hopeful that we will have information that we can actually be providing out in public in a few short months. Okay. And so it's um, unfortunately not something that we're going to be able to have done in the next couple of weeks while people in, in Texas start to contemplate potentially going back to the office. But um, instead, it, it's going to take months. Mm-hmm. That's just the, the capacity upon which this needs to get done for it to be credible. Mm-hmm. What types of things are you looking at related to COVID and how do you go about making a study? Sure. So let's talk, let's say, let's use HVAC, um, okay. air conditioning in our buildings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of information out there that is contradictory about how the virus moves through the air yeah. and um, if or how at all it gets into our HVAC systems. And once it's in our HVAC, HVAC systems, what can you do to manage that down? And so that's, that is really I think at, at the core of a lot of the work right now is, is utilizing the knowledge that the medical community is picking up on a daily basis and the, med- and the Mayo Clinic is as well, and using that knowledge then with the expertise of, of our engineers at Heinz to think about how we can be making changes to our HVAC systems to um, reduce the spread of the virus in our own building. So one thing that um, people talk a lot about in some of our circles are, is UV lighting, ultraviolet lighting, right? And so if you put ultraviolet lighting in your HVAC system, by pushing the air through that lighting, it kills the virus. There's information out there that says in, a few, in, in 10 seconds under that light, it can kill the virus, or in 30 seconds or two minutes, it'll kill the virus. But in most instances, when you're pushing airflow through an HVAC system, it's only going through that light in less than a second. And so the, the, the manner upon which we have to think about the, the movement of the virus through a space is both an exercise in medicine and engineering. And mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of things that we're um, working on together. And how do you study that? So, there's gonna, uh, so within the lab itself, they have a very robust sensor system across their HVAC system. Um, within our own buildings... We're actually contributing our own space uh, and our own office buildings for R&D testing as well. And so um, the idea is to actually widen the lab beyond the lab itself and allow us to get as much data and as much information we can about the airflow. The, the, the specificity of exactly how we're going to be doing the tests of how the virus, if and how it gets uh, into our HVAC systems and through is frankly what we're working on right now. Got it. So I wanted to ask, I know that I'm sure that this takes up a fair bit of your time as an innovation officer, 
But also, I'm interested to know what it's like at Heinz and what it's like working for a company that, for the most part, owns and operates office buildings. Office buildings now everywhere are essentially closed. What is life like or what is your work like like right now? The work today, I would say, is um, very challenging, mainly because our buildings, we've, we've had a pandemic plan for 15 years that you know we've engaged here. We have um, some of the best folks in the industry working on our challenges, and we have uh, a number of task forces that are every day, all day, all we're thinking about is this crisis and how we can manage our way through it in a way that's safe and helpful for our, 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 our occupants in our buildings as well as our investors. And um, I think the most challenging part of it is the unknown nature, the unknown nature of the timing. Mm-hmm. We've certainly never experienced anything like this. Yeah. And uh, it has created um, a great deal of concern and, and focus within the company. And that, that's, that is palpable. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's also been really interesting to have all of this occurring while everyone is at home. Um, like a lot of companies, we've been, I think, impressed by our own people and their ability to be productive when we're all home. I think that um, the nature of the, the kind of gravity of the challenge and the fact that people are working from home, it's just, there's just been no experience I've ever had that's quite like it. We've been talking about companies going back to work. When do you think Heinz is going to go back to work? And I know you're a giant company with different divisions and regions and, and things like that. And I imagine it will be phased like, like other companies are doing. But do you have any insight on that? Yeah. So due to the fact that we are, we have almost 5,000 employees and um, we're in a lot of places in the world. The change that's occurring and where people are in their scheduling to be coming to work or not coming to work varies dramatically around the world, as we know. Um, Our Asia office is already open. They've been back since April. Okay. But we here in Houston and around the U.S. and other parts of the world in Europe are, are, are not quite yet. But in Germany, we're, we're very close. Um, in Texas, we're beginning to talk about it. So it's going to vary from place to place. What we do have is a set of processes in place to think through when we think it's appropriate to be coming back mm-hmm. and, um, and allow our local teams and experts to know when that exists just because doing this all at the same time isn't going to work just due to the way that our organization is built. Um, and so we have really a set of processes and guidelines for our people and people are going to start heading back to work a few weeks and others aren't going to be back for months. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll be in that in-between stage for, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. What are the offices like in China? How, what does that look like? So in China, it's been having, having our, our, our China presence has been, in so many ways, kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. You know, when, when we really started shutting things down here in the U.S., they were opening them up. It was really helpful to have that experience and those, and those people there telling us what's going on and um, giving us observations, or pardon me, giving us um, guidance about how we should be thinking about 
the mental health of our of our own employees and of everyone who wants to typically be at work and can't and what all those challenges are and how they've manifested themselves and to get all of that insight from them has been uh, hugely helpful. N- now they are mostly back. I would say that our buildings in in China are anywhere between eighty five and one hundred percent back. I would say the the the, the feeling of 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 our employees, Shanghai and Beijing. We're regular here, regularly hearing that um, it's still, you still very much feel the weight of, of the challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's been really helpful to see them uh, progressing, but at the same time, they're, it still sounds challenging and, and scary, even in an environment where people are back to work, but it's, but it's working. And right. um, so we continue to try to utilize what we're seeing over there to prepare ourselves in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's got to be so valuable for a company to have operations over there to, to be able to share those, you know, the practices of, of what's working and, and what's not working. In China, did companies, tenants, and landlords had to reconfigure spaces to bring everyone back? You know, here I'm hearing people talking about removing every other desk and taking out chairs and conference rooms and things like that. What was that process like in China? It's been, from my understanding, quite different than that. Okay. In China, they have... They have gone through challenges like this before, mm-hmm. and in, re- in recent memory, you know, the minute that people started hearing about the coronavirus, the very first time in China, I, 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 I hear, I understand that everyone immediately started wearing their masks, and um, and everyone immediately started being very careful. It's just kind of part of their their culture now. As a result, we have not seen them make dramatic density changes. Um, in fact, some of our new leasing that we're doing now has increased density beyond what we had leased before uh, COVID. And so I, I've also heard that in other parts of the world that, that this, the de-densification is kind of the word that we're using. Okay. Um, it's, it's much more of a topic here in the U.S. than it is in other parts of the world. I think in other parts of the world, uh, like in, uh, we're hearing about the importance of social distancing as it relates to uh, you're walking in your lobby, thinking about your elevatoring, but making wholesale changes um, in your office is not something that people are, is at the very top of the list. Whereas here um, in the U.S., uh, it is, it's really the topic. And why do you think that is? Is it, is it because people are more used to um, being more careful there? Like you said, everyone put their masks on right away. And so maybe there's not the need for that sort of level of de-densification? I think that in China specifically, yes, due to the fact that they have gone through similar challenges in the past, that they believe that this will pass as well. Mm-hmm. And however long, they will iterate back towards normal density levels anyway. And so... There are other means and methods that they're taking to, to manage that. Now, I'm talking in kind of absolute terms, which isn't exactly fair, but, but from, a, from a trend perspective, it's, it's been 
interestingly quite different. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 yeah, the 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 reasoning behind the de-densification focus here in the US is that it's been a very long time since we've experienced anything like this over here. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's um it, it wasn't really the direction I expected to go in today, but it's been pretty fascinating to hear how that's happening. And I think your labradoodle is is um, I can hear him when my headphones start. He wants to like <laughs> he wants to join in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants that as crate, is what he wants. <laughs> yeah, no, that this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. And I'd I'd love to follow back up with with you. We've been we've been starting to do some podcasts where we go back to people that we've interviewed to find out sort of how their lives have changed um, or how their businesses have changed. And so I could see a, a, a scenario where we come back to Heinz and, and have a, you know, have another discussion about what are some of the things that you've learned and, and especially as some of your tenants move back into your buildings, what, what that looks like. Uh, yeah, I'd love that. I'd really welcome that. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll hopefully have more and more that 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 we can share and discuss in in short order. But yeah. um, this has been this has been great. Thanks for um, having me, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. So so have I, listeners. Thanks for being here. If you don't already subscribe to Looped In, we're available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an idea for a show or just want to say hi please reach out. We are on Facebook and Twitter. I am at N Sarnoff and Rebecca. I'm at R.A. Shoots. All right. Until next time, stay safe and have a great day.